week we'll talk about working on open source. And we have a special guest today, Will. Will is a software engineer and author, and he's quite an enthusiastic developer of open source software. And he is the creator of some very popular Python packages. Welcome, Will. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Before we go into our main topic of working on open source, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Career journey so far? I'm condensed 25 years into a few sentences. Well, I started out in video games. I was working uh, video games for about 10 years plus, uh, PC games, PlayStation games, even uh, Dreamcast. And I kind of moved into desktop applications. I worked for a while for the Internet Chess Club. Then I worked in various uh, kind of new media websites, that kind of things. And uh, for the last, uh, well, prior to my current position, I was freelancing, doing mostly Python stuff, mostly web-related um, building servers and protocols. And uh, very recently, I've started a, a company called Textualize. Yeah, that was pretty condensed. For 25 years, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For your work at the chess club, did you have to play chess well? No, I'm a very weak player, to be honest. I'm better at um, implementing software than I am at playing chess. And I was working on um, a new interface for the Internet Chess Club. So it was like um, a chessboard where you could move pieces around and draw arrows and uh, you know exchange chat with other players. Yeah, I was imagining an interview where you need to win like a couple of people in order to pass the interview. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like no. that, was it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I did, uh, I quite like chess and I did play a little bit, but the reason I got that job is because I built some chess software in my spare time, mm-hmm. you know, a few years previously, and I was selling that. Um, and this is before my open source adventures. This was um, something to make profit from. And well, I didn't make a lot of money, uh, but I brought in a, a few thousand pounds, uh, but I got the attention of the Internet Chess Club, so I got a job <laughs> out of it. So it's not so bad. Yeah, cool. So speaking about your open source, so can you tell us about your open source projects? What are they? What did you work on? I had a, a few small projects a while ago. I had a BB code parser. I um, don't know if you're familiar with BB code. Uh, this is like something we use for old PHP forums, right? Yeah, it was for bulletin boards. If you wanted to type something that had bold in it, you would do uh, square bracket B close square yeah, it's bracket. It's like HTML, but with square kind brackets. Of yeah, okay. and at the time, I was um, adding that to a website, and there wasn't a BB code parser, so I, I built one and then published it for Python. For, for Python, yeah, uh, and it started to get a bit of traction because um, at the time, other people in the same position wanted to implement uh, BB code. Um, so I think that's my first. Actually, it's not my first, but the first project which got traction and people started using. I'd, I'd written other things prior to that. Was it something you just saw, like you, you really need this and you thought, okay, like there is nothing, let me just implement this? It's exactly like that. Yeah, I, I needed it for a website. I Googled, couldn't find anything that did it. So I just implemented it and it was quite interesting. It's a simple kind of parser and renderer. Yeah, I just, most of my open source stuff has been like that. I, I want something to exist. If there was something already that did it, I would have just taken it off the shelf. But when it doesn't, I think about building it myself. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. You wanted to tell us about the other, the next project you worked after this BB parser. Oh, there's a few other small projects which um, I'd open sourced. Oh, there was a, a chess library, um, a library which I wrote over a few weeks, which parsed chess moves, read PGN files, which is what stores chess game information. And yeah, I, I published that 
It was quite buggy, actually. There was a few bugs, um, but people submitted uh, PRs. I'm not sure if they were called PRs at the time. <laughs> was it on GitHub Exist back then? Uh, this was pre-GitHub, I'm pretty sure. I think it might have been Google Code. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember this thing mm. too, but they closed it. They closed it, yeah. Or maybe good for GitHub, but I kept quite a few projects there. Yeah, it wasn't bad for the day. It used oh. SVN, which was... I quite liked SVN, but I think Git took over. Yeah, yeah. so I had a few projects on there. But in my next... Uh, the project that, that took off was something called PyFile System. So again, it's a Python library, which abstracts file systems. So a, f- a file system would be like your, your hard drive, but it could also be an FTP server, or it could be a zip file. And PyFile System would provide a common interface onto all of those things. So you could write some code which uh, by default would read files off your hard drive. But if you want to read it files from the cloud, you could do that by just swapping a one line. Or if you want to write a zip file, um, it's just, just a matter of copying between two file systems, that kind of thing. So it's kind of an abstraction layer for file systems. I think it's pretty commonly used still, right? It's, it's still quite popular. You know, it was over 10 years ago and it's on version two of the interface and it's still being used. I had to give it over to other maintainers because I just didn't have the time to maintain it. That's the tragedy of open source is once you, once you build something that gains traction, there's no end. <laughs> there's no end to it. People use it. They want fixes and they want updates and refinements. Um, and I did that for nearly 10 years. Um, but at some point you have to say, sorry, I, I have to <laughs> go into another project. But, but fortunately, um, there's a couple of very talented developers who were already submitting PRs and who were already maintainers. So I just had to leave it to them and they've done a fantastic job so far. That's the, also the beauty of open source. You said the tragedy, but also the beauty, right? Because there That's are right. people who the code is open, right? So if you say, okay, this is enough for me, then the code is open, right? Anyone can come and keep on working on this. That's right. And that's, that's the awesome thing about open source. Um, your little pet project can become something bigger and other people can uh, fairly naturally migrate to it and start producing content and fixes. Um, so a project can be bigger than that, the one person that started it. And S3FS is also your thing? Yes. So S3FS is a, a file system. So it, it has exactly the same interface as all the other ones, but it writes to Amazon S3. Tricky part was that Amazon S3 isn't a full file system. It looks kind of like a file system. Yeah, like the folders are fake, right? The folders are, are fake. They're basically just files. And you can, by convention, you can impose a kind of a logical file system, but it's not a full file system. But you know the interface is flexible enough in that it can present the illusion to the developer that it is just a file system uh, like your hard drive. Yeah, the, just a few days ago, I discovered that in Pandas, you can read and write to CSV, no, to, to S3, sorry. And then, of course, you know what it uses for reading and writing to S3? Does it use S3FS? Yeah, they, they do, yes. So they oh. made me install it. They say, okay, it looks like you're trying to write to S3, but you need to install this dependency to be able to do this. Okay. Is it the PyFile system version? Because I think there's um, another package called S3FS. I don't know. 
So yeah. I just needed to do pip install s3fs, and I, okay. I'm not sure what which exactly was. No, it. I think that's another one. I think my s3fs on PyPy is um, fs underscore s3fs because uh, they ah, came okay. before me. I see. I see. I was very unimaginative um, regarding <laughs> uh, package names okay. back then. <laughs> Yeah, I guess uh, I already answered you. How do you come up with this, these ideas? So you see you need, mm. you need something, you need to do something, right? You need a BB code parser, you need a, a way to access files, like a common way of working with zip files, mm. FTP files, S3, and there is nothing, and then you go ahead and implement. Is this how it works for all your open source projects? Often, PyFile system had an interesting origin. That, that came from when I was working for the internet chess club. So they had a, a chess interface which came with a bunch of files and we were implementing a plugin system where you could distribute a zip file and that would overlay the existing file system with other files, but do it virtually. So it didn't copy over files, it just kind of transparently presented the illusion to the application that was reading combined file systems. So I implemented something like PyFile system for that. But when I left uh, Internet Chess Club, I realized that this is quite a flexible system. You know, just creating this virtual file system illusion, you could put anything behind it. So I, I implemented that in my spare time. And yeah, it took um, a few months to come together. But yeah, that's how that started. But there was an idea that you got inspiration from your full-time job. And you thought, okay, it doesn't seem like there is anything like that out there. Yeah. And you thought, okay, like, let's just implement this. Exactly, yeah, how most of my projects start. And then sometimes it's intellectual curiosity. Like, I, I don't know how to implement something. I've got some vague ideas. Sometimes the best way to learn is to, to give it a go and see what you can come up with. And, uh, you know, I've got way more abandoned projects than projects that, you know, become popular. Do you publish everything you do open source, like in, in open source? Or there are some things, I think you mentioned this chess thing. I don't remember what was it, like something related to chess that you said it yeah. wasn't open source, right? So some things are not open source for you. Yeah, that was open source on Google Code. Ah. But in those days, um, Google Code didn't have as the collaboration features. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of something I did in my spare time on my own computer. And then I thought someone might be interested in this and I would upload it to, to Google Code. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people did take it and put it into their own projects and, and fix bugs there. And some of those got fed back. Is it the thing that got you a job in the chess website? Because you, you mentioned that you were selling something for a couple of hundred pounds per month. Did you already make money with open source or was it a different thing? No, that was something um, proprietary that I was just um, okay. working on as a hobby. I wanted to turn it into uh, a living, but I couldn't quite do that. So I, I built a, a chess interface. I think it was in C. C++. And that's how I learned all about um, parsing chess and, and validating uh, moves and such. I know we didn't cover all your open source projects and uh, there are some more recent ones, which we will probably talk later when we talk about your career or your experience as a founder. Mm. But I wanted to go a little bit back in time, maybe 10 years ago. So I checked your LinkedIn and I saw that your last full-time job was in 2010. And since then you've been a freelancer. So why did you decide to go solo? Why did you decide to start freelancing back then? It wasn't um, a particularly conscious decision. I was in a job uh, at the time that I wasn't 
enjoying. And I was, uh, you know, looking on, I think it's Python job board and there was someone looking for a Python developer to do three months work. And I thought, well, that's quite good. Um, I can leave this job that I don't enjoy. Um, I could do the three months work and the pay was quite good. And that would give me a buffer to find my next full-time position. But anyway, those three months turned into another six months yeah. and that contract just kept being extended. So I was with that company for more than 10 years, 11 years, actually. So it's like a, not quite freelancing. It's freelancing, but not quite, right? <laughs> because it's, it's, it's the same company. Technically freelancing for tax purposes. Interesting. Yeah. Ah, this is uh, how it can also work. I don't think I ever met anyone who's, who's done anything like that. In Germany, actually, it's interesting. In Germany, like if you try to pull something, to pull off something like this, then the tax authority will come after you. They'll, they will say, oh, something is suspicious here. Like, mm -hmm. it looks like full-time employment. Like, who are you trying to cheat? <laughs> yeah, we have that here as well. And you have to be okay. aware of the rules, but we stayed on, on the right side. So it was yeah. uh, technically uh, <laughs> freelancing. And uh, mm -hmm. I did actually other jobs as well. Um, there's a few jobs that came up, much smaller contracts generally, but the fact that you can do two contracts at the same time is indicative of freelancing because a full-time position, you're generally not allowed to do and take on any other work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was very conscious to um, stay on the right side of the rules. And this experience of being a freelancer, working with multiple clients, long-term clients and smaller, like uh, shorter contracts, like was it something you also gave you inspiration for your open source projects or your open sourcing uh, activities were quite unrelated to your freelancing? Strangely, the open source stuff was kind of like an escape uh, from the, the contracting because um, at the contracting, you've got lots of business requirements. And you have to integrate with other people's software and you have much less scope. Well, I found in that position, I had much less scope um, to make the big decisions and to influence how the project grows. So what I found was that I would do a, a project on the side. And when I did that, I was like master of my own domain. I can make all the big decisions and you know influence the, the architecture. And I found that bizarrely to be you know, kind of cathartic, a kind of a, a release from my day job. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that many people who work in uh, IT developers, they also have uh, development software engineering as a hobby <laughs> to get away from what this It is very strange. You know, it'd be like a doctor who did appendectomies at the weekend just to relax. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's kind of, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, yeah, maybe let's talk a bit about your more recent open source projects. Mm -hmm. So I know that one of the projects, which you will tell us now, actually led to starting a company. Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe can you tell us how it happened? Like what's the story there? Um, yeah, sure. So I think the project you're um, alluding to is, is Rich, uh, which is another Python library, which can write interesting things to the terminal. So you've got like color and style and formatting and tables and things like progress bars and spinners, etc. He started out with a much smaller vision. I had this idea several years ago. Um, I was working on a, on a web framework, again, another hobby project. And as part of that web framework, there was a module called console.py. And console.py had many of the, the same ideas as Rich. 
in that you could write a kind of a markup which would insert color and style into your text and it could manipulate that text to produce more interesting formatting. And when I left that project, I still had at the back of my mind that maybe I should take that console.py and factor out into another library because it was quite useful. And I found myself wishing that existed when I was working on other projects. So that was, you know, a few years had passed. And then I had some spare time when I was traveling. And I thought, oh, I'll give this a go. I'll write something. I'll figure out how to do these ANSI codes to add color. And then like, you know, a week or two, I had my Hello World. My Hello World was in bold magenta in the terminal. That was the start of it. I built a flexible system for applying style to text and still allowing the developer to format that text afterwards. And this always in terminal, right? All this in the, in the terminal. Yeah. So there was lots of libraries which did similar things. Um, but what I found was they didn't integrate very well. So if you had a library which, say, turned some text into bold or italic or give it some color, that would work. But then you've got another library which does tables and you want to put some formatted text inside the table cell and you couldn't. Um, it just once you format the text, you couldn't manipulate it afterwards. So there's all these libraries which did you know, a fairly good job of what they were intended to do, but they didn't work together. Mm -hmm. um, so you still couldn't do a great deal. And I think you could see that from the projects in those days, that when they did add color, it tended to be a single line at a time. If you saw a table, it tended to be just two colors, just foreground and background. So I want to build something which took all these ideas and put them together in a way where you could functionally integrate them. So if you have some text, you could put it in a cell and it would wrap properly. And you can also style that text in advance. So you could apply, say, syntax highlighting to code, uh, put that within a table cell, and that would just render as you'd want it to. And I built this system and then I published it and it took off, basically. I think other people found that need which is quite interesting. Uh, like usually developers who are into the terminal world, so who are in command line interfaces, mm -hmm. I found, and I'm one of the, those people, like maybe these people care less about the aesthetics, but they, they care more about the func functionality, right? So, yeah. And there's not necessarily a conflict there because mm -hmm. um, if you use rich, it doesn't break any of the kind of like functionality of a terminal. For instance, if you pipe, it just makes it nicer. Right? It makes it nicer. Yeah. But if you pipe some of the content that you've done with rich um, into another file or another application, it will strip off the color. So it doesn't break anything as far as the, the kind of like terminal apps go. And um, mm -hmm. I think even those people that said, oh, I don't mind. I just want to see the, uh, the content. And um, when you add a bit of, color and style, say just emphasizing strings or formatting data structures. And um, they go, okay, <laughs> yeah, this I actually wanted. Yeah, I must admit that uh, CLI tools that I use that have these features, they are more attractive. Right? Yeah. So it's not like that actually matters at the end, like when it comes to functionality, if it gets the job done, mm -hmm. it gets the job done. But still there is this appealing element that is quite nice this uh, little touch that okay now it's uh, just more pleasant to look at yeah more pleasant to look at but you know when you say something is more pleasant it also means it's more readable 
you can pick out the information which is more relevant quicker. Mm-hmm. And if, if all your, your command line applications are, are like that, it saves you time. It saves you time. You know, if, I'm sure you've been pages of output and you're scrolling through and it's quite dense. It takes time for you to visually parse and, and pick out the information you need. But if that's formatted, usually it's logs. Usually it's logs. Yeah. And, yeah. and Rich has a, a log formatter, which puts things in nice, neat columns and it colorizes appropriate bits of information. Can you just pipe it? Like, let's say I have boring DAO log from, I don't know, my Python server. And then can I just pipe it through Rich to make it more pleasant to look at? Not by default, no. But Python has a logging library and Rich has a, a handler for this. So you can swap out okay. regular Python logging for Rich logging. And then you get nice, neat, formatted output. But I guess when you write it to a file, it's all lost. It's it's all lost, yeah. So you only see it when it's in the terminal, yeah. Okay. You worked on this library reach, and uh, what happened after that? So reach was becoming really popular, um, and at some point, someone, a couple of guys, very talented guys, they took reach and they built a text user interface with it, which would display information from the GitHub API, which were like uh, recent pull requests, and it's it divided the screen up into four and showed like scrolling windows and it formatted it really nicely. And uh, when I saw that, I realized that there was so much potential um, to take Ridge and then build uh, a framework around it, which did more dynamic things. So instead of just um, writing content to the scroll buffer that you could scroll through, like most applications do, it could take over the entire screen. Like HTOP, right? Like HTOP, yeah, but that's that's the um, the twoies of yesterday. <laughs> you can do so much more. Terminal support, 16.7 million colors. It's very rare to see applications which actually use that. Mm-hmm. And you can update things quite quickly. So you can have a web page there. You, you said it supports 16 million, like basically the whole RGB space, right? Yeah, so, so you can create something which... Um, works much more like a web page. I mean, it's also very limited in what you can present, but it can be remarkably functional. And these applications, if you're familiar with a web page or a desktop application, even if you're not a technical user or developer, we can sit you down in front of these applications and you can use it because it's got lots of uh, familiar controls. Anyway, what I just described there was was uh, Textual, which is a framework that I started building which is built on, on top of Rich. And, you know, I was really pleased the way that was going. I realized there's a lot of potential there. And I had this idea for a business. And I was at a point in my career where I thought, I should take a year off, uh, live off savings for a year and give this a go. Because I thought it was a great idea. At the end of that year, uh, maybe I could approach someone with venture capital to build a company around it. You know, I was blogging about this, sorry, not blogging, uh, tweeting, kind of an avid tweeterer. And I think it was those tweets which um, got the attention of a venture capital firm and they, they approached me. And at the time, I hadn't fully um, explained my idea for business, but I discussed it with them. And it took a while, lots of backwards and forwards. I mean, I, I refined a, a business plan of sorts. And then uh, I got investment. So it was... Um, I was unemployed for barely th- three months. Ah, right. 
So you gave yourself a year, but after three months, you yeah. got money. Because I, um, I thought that I would need to have something which was approaching a finished product before I could go to someone and ask for money. But the, the venture capital scene at that time was more, um, what's the term, is it bearish or bullish? I can't remember. But they were willing to invest in, on, on a good idea, something which had potential. So we got, I think it's called pre-seed funding. And it's, it's enough to start a company and uh, employ some developers. Mm-hmm. And how did this tweet look like? I imagine you didn't specifically write, hey, this is like, I fixed this bug. By the way, if you're a VC, give us some money. This didn't look like this, right? No, not not at all. Because my plan A was to take that year off. Yeah. And, and that's what I was tweeting about. And I think that just got the attention of the VC company and they, they approached me. And as certainly in our first conversation, I thought it was just someone wanting to discuss what I was working on because I, I do that. I like to talk to people in the in the Python community and you know exchange their ideas and go over the projects they're working on. But then I soon realized that okay, maybe this is an opportunity to get investment, and and certainly that was much more attractive than me burning up a year's worth of uh, savings. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I think this approach is called building in public, right? So when you just do something, work on your project, and then every little thing you work on, you share it on social media, on Twitter, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you do that without any expectation that anyone's going to read it <laughs> or see it. But if there's people out there, they might find that interesting and they, they start to follow you. But the thing about the stuff I was working on, rich and textual, is it's by its very nature, it's quite visual. So I can work on something and I can post a screenshot or a video. Okay, this is what I did today, right? This is the bug I fixed, right? And then you just take a picture yeah, and post. Exactly. Yeah. And here's the feature that I'm working on. And I can show progress. So initially, you know, the first few hours work, I get something that's very rudimentary, but it kind of looks like it might turn into something nice. And then every time I add a, a feature or I refine it, I can post a new a new video, a new tweet explaining what I did. Mm-hmm. And people follow that because it's it can be quite interesting to some people. Did you do this with intention of getting somebody's attention or just was out of the habit? I don't know. Why did you actually tweet about this? I guess um, it's just something that I'm interested in. And that, that's what Twitter's mm-hmm. for. You just kind of like throw something out there. Like this is what I ate today and this is what I did today. Right? Well, I sometimes do that. I sometimes post pictures <laughs> of what I cooked, but no one is interested in that at all. I did notice that people did actually react to the, the screenshots that I posted. Mm-hmm. So that kind of motivated me to do more of that kind of content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, this comment about what I ate, I started my Twitter journey in 2020. And before that, I thought that Twitter is a place where people share the food they eat. Like mm. they just said, okay, this is the burger I ate today at McDonald's. And this is my French fries. And I thought this is what Twitter is for. But I was surprised when I learned that it's not actually that yeah. bad. Now it's Instagram where people do this kind of stuff. Well, it still is that a bit and it's and more. Um, but there's lots of bubbles. The people that follow you and people you follow, they, they create kind of like a bubble. So you, you get people that are like-minded who are interested in the same things that you're interested in. So, I mean, Twitter can be a, a really horrible place. <laughs> like, don't yeah. post anything political. It's a bad idea. But if, if you get that bubble of people that are interested in the same thing you're interested in, you can get a lot of feedback from what you do and you can learn a lot from them and it can be very positive. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I think last time I checked, I think today you had uh, quite a few followers, right? It was uh, 18k or something like that? Uh, yeah, 18,000. 18, yeah, crazy. Was it like that when you got approached by the ABC? Yeah, well, it's slightly less, obviously. But yeah, yeah. I did have a fair number of followers. Yeah. I think it might have been like 12,000 at the time. So you have this habit of just tweeting about what you work on. Yeah. And then over time, you accumulated a decent number of followers, right? And then I guess when you have quite a large, I don't know if audience is the right word, mm-hmm. but people who follow you, then uh, you get attention from people like VCs, right? But it yeah. wasn't your intention. It wasn't my so intention okay. at the start, certainly. I mean, later on, um, I won't lie, I have, I have gamed the system, so I, I try to get people to react to it. I try to post things which people might be interested in. But initially, it was just me because um, software development can be kind of like a, a solitary thing. I mean, I'm married, but my wife's not in the same. <laughs> she's, she's not a, a developer, and she doesn't get excited about the same things that I get excited about as far as software development goes. So it was quite nice to be able to reach other people that are interested in what you're interested in. So that's why I did it. Um, I just put something out there and got a feel for what the kind of reaction was. So it was never any intention of trying to attract investment. Mm-hmm. So I guess one day you woke up, you see a direct message saying, hey, take our money, right? And then you thought, okay, let's take it. <laughs> and you started the company, right? Um, wasn't quite as direct as that. <laughs> there was lots, I mean, obviously they want to do the due diligence, so they'll, they'll discuss the business plan with you and then they want they want details and, you know, there's lots of backs and forwards. But in all honesty, it didn't take all that much time. I mean, everything I read told me that when you come to look for investment, it'll take you a long time. You have to approach many investors and you'll have to get used to getting knocked back and refining your pitch. But for whatever reason... That wasn't the case for me. It was actually a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you started a company. Mm-hmm. So I guess you're the CEO of the company, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you said you got uh, this pre-seed round, which gave you enough money to actually start hiring, right? Yeah, so I've got um, two other developers now, and mm-hmm. uh, we will be hiring again probably within a few months. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they gave you some money with the intention that you spent this money on hiring developers, right? Well, just um, running the business, but developers are generally the most expensive part of a business. They just give you the money and say, do whatever you think is necessary, and then it's up to you to decide if you want to spend this money on developers, on marketing, or on whatever. Yeah, essentially. I mean, um, you still have like a controlling share of the company, so it's it's your company. Um, They'd want you to succeed, and they Mm -hmm. know the kind of the, the tech industry. So they're, they're good to have on your side. Um, they can help you navigate, you know, the world of tech startups. How do you earn money with uh, Textualize? Do you earn money with this? No, not at the moment. Um, so we're in kind of a research and development phase. Mm-hmm. We're building Textual, creating this framework which you can use to build applications within the terminal, trying to make that as, as beautiful as we possibly can. And then what we want to do is build kind of a web interface which takes those terminal-based applications and turns them into web applications with a single switch. So you can build an application, distribute it on PyPy or usual channels if you wish, but you can also build it and then serve it on the web 
um, just incredibly easily. And that'll make it available to non-technical people because terminal applications um, are generally kind of a walled garden is almost exclusively developers and some other technical people that, that use them. But a textual application uh, can be you know, usable by non-technical people. And I think mm-hmm. you know, there's a big market there. It's a, probably a very small sliver of the web application market. But I think if we do it right, it can be like we would have you know, the whole, whole sliver to ourselves, if that makes sense. Because VCs don't give you money just to have fun, right? So they want to see that eventually in a couple of years or I don't know how long you will be able to return this money, right? Yeah. To give them return on investment. So they need some sort of business plan for you. Mm-hmm. Like in two years, I will want to earn money this way, right? Exactly. So they want something concrete, right? Yeah. Or how concrete it should be. Well, there has to be a, a roadmap. I mean, sometimes when you're in this kind of research and development phase, the exact nature of how you're going to make money um, might not be that clear, but there has to be a roadmap where you can see mm-hmm. you could have a, a viable product which people might want to pay for in the future. Mm-hmm. And the thing I like about what we've done is that it can still stay true to its roots as open source. Um, I'm still building something which is open source. You get all the code and you can do what you want with it. But this web service is an add-on thing. It doesn't take anything away from what you've got. It just gives you an extra feature. Hmm. And we do plan on, on having a very generous free tier um, for individual developers, open source projects. Um, it'll be free and you can serve it to uh, quite a lot of users. So beyond that, we would charge for some features for more enterprise type of uses. I think there's a app called Streamlit. Maybe you heard about this? Yeah, they were recently acquired, yeah, for $800 million. That was a good number, mm-hmm. right? But the, the business model they have is somewhat similar, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have a terminal GUI, right? But the business model itself, like you can cost a few things for free, but if you want to go beyond this limit, then you have to pay some money. Yeah. It's quite a similar business model. And even they have a, a Python API and we'll have a, a Python API. So it's very related. Their audience is probably slightly different from ours. Mm-hmm. More kind of engineer type use cases, engineer tools, developer tools, something to bridge that gap between engineers and their managers and their bosses. But Streamlit is data science, machine learning. But yeah, the model is quite similar. Mm-hmm. And I guess you wouldn't mind being acquired by Snowflake. I wouldn't mind, yeah, if they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, if you're from Snowflake, yeah, please DM Will. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so you mentioned hiring. So you already hired somebody, right? Uh, yeah, we got two developers, yeah. They've been working mm-hmm. for Textualize for some months now. And how did the process look like? Like, did you just tweet, hey, by the way, we got some money. Who wants to work with me? Was it like that? The first hire was someone that I knew of already. He had an open source project and I exchanged some messages about those open source projects um, well before Textualize happens. And of course I could see all his code and I thought, well, this guy's quite good. And quite by chance, he happened to be in the same city. So I approached him and quite by chance again, he happened to be having doubts about the company that he was working for. That worked out quite well. Um, so he started when the company started in January mm-hmm. and I hired another developer fairly recently 
who's a, a web specialist, has lots of experience. So yeah, I'm quite pleased. This company's very small, obviously. <laughs> Three people, yeah. including you, right? That's right, yeah. So you have to do all the HR, pretty much everything, right? Yeah, my wife helps. She's my PA uh -huh. slash bookkeeper slash HR, okay. which is, is a big help because those kind of admin tasks, they take up way too much time. So I'm, I'm very grateful to my wife for, for taking those on. So it's actually four people, right? Four people in total, yeah. Three developers. For you, how important it is that when you're hiring people that they contributed, they have contributed to open source? It's not essential. Well, the great thing is when someone's contributed to open source, you can see their work. They've got a body of work that you can look through um, without the knowledge. And you can also see their interactions with people because we're building in public. So the code is just as important as how you respond to PRs and issues. So it gives you a good idea of um, you know the employee that you're hiring. So I would say it's, it's not essential. Not all developers work with open source and there's some very talented developers which don't but it's certainly a, a check on a list if a developer has open source experience. The two developers that you hired, do they have this experience, both of them? The first developer, he did. He had uh, quite a lot of experience. Um, second developer, he had some code, but not a particular big body of work. But he did have lots of experience in a variety of areas. Okay. But uh, the way you work is completely open, right? Maybe can you tell us like how exactly you organize work between three of you? So it's all the standard kind of workflow with GitHub. We're using everything GitHub. To manage the work we use GitHub projects, which is kind of like a, a Kanban board. You've got a, a backlog, which is jobs that need to do, and have a to-do list, which is things that I'd like to be done um, soonish. I can um, order those by priority, and then a developer can pick one that he feels he could do, and he drags that to the, the doing list and um, works on that and then we do a PR review and then when it goes through the review process it gets merged and we drag that to done. It's a super simple system. There's only three of us now so I think that'll be fine for quite some time. Uh, I'm sure at some point when the team gets bigger uh, we might have to investigate some other methodologies to, to manage tasks but mm -hmm. so far that seems to be working for us. Do you have occasional contributors, so people who use it, and then they see, okay, maybe there is a bug, and then they submit a PR? Yes, we do, yeah. For both Rich and Textual, because Textual uses Rich, we're refining Rich, um, making that faster and fixing bugs, and also adding features, and people can contribute to, to both projects. Rich in particular, uh, Textual's tricky because we're really actively working on that in different branches, um, but we do welcome contributions in the form of code or issues or discussions even, which I think is the strengths of working that way, working in the open. If you're working, you know, with everything closed, you work, 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 and then you release something which is almost finished, and then you get feedback with the interfaces and, and the functionality. But if you're working in the open, you know, with open source, you get feedback immediately and ongoing so by the time you get to release, um, lots of people have seen it and used it and possibly contributed and found bugs. So I think it's actually a very productive way of working. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if, um, let's say, somebody wants to contribute. Do you have any good first issues? We don't at the moment. Rich has issues, um, but Rich is very mature. It's been around for 
two years, we never seem to run out of issues. So if someone wants to contribute, that'd probably be the better project to contribute. Just pick an issue. If you think it's something you might fix, we can discuss the approach and then contribute. Textual at the moment is just, you know, we're just um, working you know, really hard on it. It's, it's quite hard for someone to contribute at the moment. Mm-hmm. Not that we would discourage it, but it might be tricky for someone who's new to the project. I'm hoping, well, the plan is by July, we'll have a, another release and a more stable interface. So that would be the best point, I think, for developers to contribute. Do you have something like GitHub discussions or, I don't know, Discord or Gitter or Slack or something like this? Yeah, we have um, GitHub discussions, so you can jump on that board. We also have a Discord, so a Discourse server. I kind of remember the difference. Discord and Discourse, one's chat and one's forum. Yeah, one uh, Discourse, I think, is a forum and Discord is a chat. Okay, it's a Discourse that we have then. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I have a few more questions I wanted to ask you. They're somewhat related, but not quite. Yeah, so you have a post. The post that has a name, getting your first 1K GitHub stars. Okay. Yeah. So maybe can you give us a summary of what is inside this post and how can I get 1,000 GitHub stars? Yeah. So with that post, what I want to do was see if I could give some advice for things that work for me. The trouble with these kind of posts is if something worked for you, it doesn't necessarily mean that mm-hmm. it's going to translate to other people. But it might, right? But it might, yeah. So the, the thing is, a lot of developers will, will work on something and then they'll put it on GitHub. And then no one will ever visit the GitHub repo. The code could be excellent. It can be very useful. So to a certain extent, you have to advertise yourself. If you want to get the feedback, you have to tell people about your project to get them interested in so I can't remember exactly what I wrote in that post, but I think that was the nature of it. You have to advertise on various things like Reddit. Reddit is quite good for announcing your project, uh, getting feedback. Is there a specific community or like you should find a community that is relevant to your project? Yeah, there's definitely one. I mean, if it's Python, you go to um, R Python. I found Reddit that when it works, it works pretty well, mm. but usually I found that moderators are quite annoying. Well, of course, they want to keep the community safe, but like, let's say I want to share a piece of my work, yeah. right? But moderators, they do not always welcome this work. And I can totally understand because I also moderate the Slack we have in Data Talks Club. Mm-hmm. But did you also have this experience that, uh, you know, we want to share something, people get excited, but then moderators come and just remove this thing? That does happen. I think when you push something onto social media, mm-hmm. you have to give something extra. Um, you can't just post a link and say, try this. You'd have to add some content um, explaining what this project is, um, why you built it, give some examples, um, etc. It has to be more interesting content than just, you don't want it to feel like spam. Um, you want it to feel like something which someone would actively want to read. So if you can do that, you stand a good chance of it of it getting to R slash Python or, or whatever channel um, you want. But even then, sometimes I've posted things thinking, oh, this is fantastic. People really love this. And I get like two upvotes and then no one comments. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. And two upvotes, two downvotes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just have to keep pushing your content out there, try to make it more interesting, and then get feedback that way. And eventually, if it's an interesting project that other people want to try you will get a bite and you will start to get some traction and you will get github stars and and responses to your posts mm-hmm. the funny thing with github stars you mentioned that the project may have an excellent code a very good code base 
I don't know, good test coverage, great documentation, but only 10 stars. Yeah. And while there are projects that do not do anything, there is a project that doesn't do anything. <laughs> right? And then it has like, I don't know, 100,000 stars. All right. And I think the message in that project was like, the best code is the code you never wrote, something like this. I don't know, it's like intended as a joke project, I guess. Yeah. But <laughs> that's funny, like how much attention this project received. While there are projects where people put a lot of effort into them, mm-hmm. right? So that project is maybe huge. So like the person just did this in uh, half an hour, put it out there, and then it got some, like, I guess the tweet went viral or, or something. Yeah. Or maybe Hacker News post or whatever. But then when you constantly put out a good work, and nobody notices it can be discouraging, right? It can be very discouraging. Yeah, you have to be a little bit persistent and also recognize that every project has um, a certain number of people that might use it. So you have to work within that. The thing about Rich was that it was a niche, but it's quite a big niche. The niche was Python developers who use the terminal and wanted to be prettier. Um, it's quite a broad niche. That's why it attracted lots of stars. If you have something that's very specific, you know, a bit of code, which might be of interest to maybe a dozen developers around the world, you're not going to get many stars. But if you get 10 if stars... You, you get 10 out of 12, then that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You've got to um, normalize it to be a percentage of your bubble. So if you've got 10 of the 12 developers who use it have started, it, that is excellent. Mm-hmm. And I guess Twitter helps right? because you constantly share what you work. Mm-hmm. Then uh, maybe one of these 10 tweets you share I don't know how Twitter works, but for whatever reason, Twitter decides to show it to more than, I don't know, 10 people. Yeah, yeah. It can be like 100,000. And sometimes like it's the, so, sort of the same tweet you make, but in one case, oh, it has only like, I don't know, 500 impressions. In another case, it has 50K impressions, right? Yeah, it has to reach like a critical threshold. You have to have um, maybe someone who's got, I don't know how it works exactly. I'm guessing that someone with a lot of... um followers retweets it and then twitter sees that as a higher value thing and then that gets retweeted and then it goes viral which is a critical threshold and then starts to spread just like a virus just like covid but (laughs) not as unpleasant (laughs) okay so i guess if you do this every day then there are chances that one of these tweets might be noticed like even if the rest do not Mm. like in your case you did not put this with the intention of getting noticed by VCs, right? You just wanted to document your your journey. Yeah, document the journey and get feedback from the developers. Even if they say, good job, then mm-hmm. feels good. Um, they might give you a suggestion, which you feed back into what you're working on. So the process makes what you're working on better. It motivates you and gives you ideas. If somebody wants to start their open source career or, I don't know, start working on open source, is there something you would suggest them do? Probably find something which solves a problem that they have because the nature of problems is that it's not just one individual which has it. If you're solving a problem, you'll find that lots of other people with that same problem and they might appreciate your work. So yeah, find a problem that you have, solve it, and then see if other people also have that problem. Would you suggest to open source everything we work on? Just put it on GitHub if it's possible, of course. If it's not something you do at work and then, of course, don't open source that unless your employer agrees. But like in your free time, would you open source everything you work on in your free time? I think the only reason is not to open source something is if you want to 
profit from it in, in, in a way that you can't share. If you're building a, a website or a service or something that you plan on charging for, if you make that completely open source, you've given away the thing which can make you an income. In an ideal world, I'd love everything to be open source, but practically some things will always be proprietary, at least for a while, at least for the point where it can make the developers an income. But once you reach a point, mm-hmm. that point, you can make it open source then. So I would say open source as much as you can, even if it's just um, some code you just tinkered with, you can put it on GitHub and it might be a bit of interest to someone else and it might turn into, it might snowball, it might become a bigger project. And you can maybe start a company. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, I know. I didn't start. I had no intention of starting a company when I started working on Rich. I just wanted to print Hello World and Bold Magenta. <laughs> that was how it started. Okay. Yeah, I think that's all we have time for today. So I want to thank you for uh, joining us today, for answering all the questions, thank you. for sharing your experience. Yeah, maybe before we wrap up, before we finish, if people have questions, what's the best way to reach out to you? Probably Twitter. So we'll have the links there. Okay, I guess that's it. Thank you, Will. Thank you very it much. It was uh, definitely fun. And thanks everyone for joining us. And see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.